Do you want to learn apologetics but become bogged down by weighty terms and philosophical concepts? Do you want to learn how to defend your faith but you don't have the time and finances to afford seminary training? If this describes you, then the layman's manual on Christian apologetics is for you. Written with a layperson in mind, the layman's manual on Christian apologetics defends the rationality of the Christian faith in terms accessible to everyone while adding practical insights and humorous stories. Gary Habermas has added a foreword to the work in which he describes the need for apologetics in the church. Full of useful resources, the layman's manual on Christian apologetics discusses the essence of truth and how you can know what is true before defending the existence of God, talking about the problem of evil, miracles, then noting the historical reasons for believing that Jesus' resurrection was an authentic event of history, and also describing how you can trust the words of the New Testament. I am pleased to announce that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available at withandstock.com and at amazon.com. I appreciate it, and may God bless. Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics, while taking truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo. And I'm joined today with Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Hello, Brian. Hey, brother. It's good to be with you. Good being here. Yeah. So it looks like uh, Christmas is getting uh, close upon us. Uh, you guys prepared, ready for ready for uh, opening everything up and, and gathering around the tree? About as ready <laughs> as I think we're going to be. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yep, yep. I was actually talking tonight with a lady from church, and uh, I told her, I said, you know, it's just Christmas has come upon us so quickly that oh, it, it doesn't even seem like it should be Christmas. No, no, yeah, we've uh, we've been actually dealing with uh, pretty moderate weather over here, and, you know, we still got uh, cows out grazing, and and so we're, we got some grazing and some we're feeding, so we're kind of halfway in between but it, it doesn't feel like christmas uh you know when thanksgiving came and went it was like wow it uh, moved along pretty quick but this uh this christmas season um has just uh, really taken off um i don't really know how to explain it but yeah we're ready for the we're ready for the food though 
I had, I had to tell you, Curtis. This is this is kind of off topic, and uh, I, I was thinking about you the other day. We uh, we actually closed, have a praise report. We closed on our house that we we're getting ready to build, and the lady who was uh, who who helped us close, she's originally from Idaho, and so uh, where you're in Montana, we were talking about Montana and Idaho, and so. <laughs> I don't know if your ears were burning last night. Yeah, if they were, were, were the pro, were the reason. <laughs> All good things. All good things. That's that's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. What part of Idaho? Uh, it's on the Oregon border. I think it starts with a P, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay, okay. Yep. yep. Good. Great. Well, hey, we got some uh, we got some kind of Q and A stuff that we come up with here, um, and uh, we you wrote an article. Um, on the Bellator Christie podcast or uh, website, um, and uh, the article—it's the latest one—is the current state of apologetics and the cure to its division. So, I guess you know, in reading your reading that article, um, I, I guess I really some of it I really didn't um, connect with because I I don't see some of the stuff that's being pointed out, um, but. You know, um, you know. I guess that's kind of what comes into this question. Is so, what led you to write this article? Absolutely. Um, it, it, I think this. Um, I think I need to clarify. I don't think that it's necessarily um, all across the board when it comes with a, to apologetics and the apologetic community. But I do think there are some areas where um, there, there are some divisions. And actually, what got me thinking along these lines, it, I had been seeing some of this before and um i was talking to uh jason klein uh, a fellow apologist uh and and uh, contributor with us at here, here at bellator christie we we were talking about some of the trends we had been seeing in apologetics and um and in fact there were some other in- individuals online who said i think they used the word tribalism or something like mm. that that uh that the apologetics community was becoming kind of tribal and this has been an issue that that I had been thinking about for a while, and and there are some areas, some some discussions that, I mean, as apologists, we want to think through areas intelligently with reason, and and yes, there are going to be some areas of disagreement, and um, you know, I, I don't even agree with myself all the time, so I know. <laughs> yeah. As apologists, we're not always going to agree, and that's to be expected. But it seems like that. In some areas, th- there's been kind of a, a nasty rapport that's being taken in certain areas that uh, I think, if left unchecked, could develop into greater div- could develop into divisions in the apologetic community. So, th- this that's what actually led me to write this article, um, just to kind of bring the tension that. That, that we need to have, even if we disagree, and it's okay if we disagree, but we need to show grace and respect uh, to one another, in, especially in the areas where, of disagreement that we possess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I guess part of it, what I kind of was thinking about is um, we we end up fighting against ourselves with these with these non essential things. Really, I mean, if we if we really get down to it. Um, the those essentials are, are should be our core, and everything that's on the fringe of this, what we le- what we need to do is, uh, I guess, not um, be ready so quickly to just uh, discount or 
um, say those, uh, you know, those are, those don't know what they're talking about or et cetera. Exactly. I mean, for instance, I, I classify myself as a non-Calvinist, um, mm-hmm. and as such, you know, I don't I don't hold to all the spheres of five point Calvinism. Um, I have some areas of disagreement with that, but I do have some colleagues and friends who are Calvinists, and and we agree on the essentials. We agree on the core elements of what it means to be a Christian. We we agree on the core fundamentals of Christianity. But now, when it comes to soteriology and and whether a person can respond to the Holy Spirit and or not, now that's that's an area where we differ. But in the large grand scheme of things, we agree on the the things that really matter. And so, um, I mean, yeah, that's not to say that some of our discussions haven't been you know intense, you know, but. Uh, but we still love one another, and we end up coming to the mutual conclusion that uh, that, that God reigns supreme, Jesus Christ is still risen from the dead, and and that's the mo- most important issue. Yeah, you know, and and uh, for for centuries and years past, um, great people have 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 actually uh, debated and discussed and gone over this, and they see it from two different views for years, for centuries, gone on, and, and you know. If we can understand that, we all have agreed from from since the cross till now. We've all agreed on very core doctrines, and I think it allows us to have a little bit more freedom. And I think God's got that in in us, allowing us to be able to have that uh, freedom with our own minds and be able to see uh, where we may disagree with somebody. But they may be seeing it from a whole different perspective, and so I think I think that's probably part of what I'm seeing. Absolutely, I think you're absolutely right on that. I mean, and I think if you go back even to Jewish history uh, with the sects, the different sects of Judaism, like you had the, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Jesus most closely identified with the Pharisees, but mm-hmm. but the the Essenes were very deterministic, right? And yeah, so. Yeah. That they right. held that everything was was subject to fate; that there was no free will whatsoever. The Sadducees believed everything was up to human choice, and that uh, God wasn't really sovereign, or he, if he was, he had no interaction. More, really, more like a deists, and that's why yeah. they were sad. You see, you yeah. know. <laughs> uh, and the Pharisees uh, were in the middle; they were kind of in the middle of the, of the uh, two extremes. So, uh, even then, you have these divisions back to even within Judaism of the first century. Right. Yeah, and I mean, you know, some of this, I guess, when you look, when I look at this, some of this is really kind of being stirred by, you know, um, some of the the cancel culture that that our society is actually starting to bubble to the surface. And, uh, you know, when those, uh, when this person doesn't agree, well, He's never agreed, and he's never going to agree, so we're just going to discount him, and not he's not even going to he, – he's nothing, you know. And I think that's a big thing when we when we start seeing that kind of trickle into the church, into our um, Bible uh, teachings, and we start seeing that kind of trickle into apologetics, kind of like what you're saying, if, if these people don't agree with me, well, they're – they're on the fringe. They're out here, and 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 you just don't want to listen to them. And I think that kind of gets to where people really don't know where 
where uh, to intellect intellectually sit and think and and be able to, you know, hey, I I sit and I think of this on my own terms and how I'm reading the scripture and this is what I'm getting. Now, this is when you get into having discussions with, uh, you know, your pastor. You have discussions with people that are, you know, further along in the walk than you and see where they sit and, and start nosing around. And that's what Bellator Christi website and podcasts are about. And, and these kind of things bubble to the surface. You know, we will answer these questions and deal with these in the, in the way that's deemed right. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right, Curtis. That's, that's, that's our goal at Bellator Christie is to do just exactly that, to, to provide answers for, uh, you know, to, to the pressing issues that people have. And you're talking about these debate, I th- this debate, I think there are three areas that really has, um, when we talk about the divisions has come about, I, I really think there are three areas where, where the main focus has been, at least from what I have seen in in uh, in the apologetic community. One is the aspect of biblical inerrancy. And in full disclosure, I hold the mm-hmm. Bible to be inerrant. Okay, I, right. I am an inerrantist. I, I, yeah. You know, I along, along the lines of Norman Geisler, along the lines of uh, individuals like that, I, I hold the Bible to be inerrant. And so... I can understand where people would have issues with certain things that are being done in certain areas of the apologetic community. But still, at the end of the day, we need to show grace. We need to speak the truth, but do it lovingly. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of slander thrown around in this issue and I think we have to I think we lose our testimony when we do that another another aspect is in the area of apologetic methodologies uh, generally speaking non-Calvinists um, as, as I think I'm, I'm safe in saying that you're probably a non-Calvinist too mm-hmm. we are more lo- likely to go along the lines of uh, evidential or classical apologetics now let me just say this now Cal- some Calvinists are very classical and evidential as well so that's not always true but generally speaking, Calvinists tend to lean towards presuppositional apologetics or even the Reformed epistemological approach, but not always. I mean, that's just that's, that's a general guideline, but not absolute. But a lot of times I think the theology gets intertwined with the apologetics, and then it becomes a real heated discussion really quickly. But here's my problem, Curtis. Instead of us debating over how to debate, why don't we go out and evangelize instead? Right. Well, <laughs> and that's and that's and that truly, truly, when we look at this, that's that's truly the enemy's tactic is to keep us uh, fighting within amongst ourselves or or chasing our tails within amongst ourselves, so we're distracted and actually doing God's work. And I think the biggest thing is, you know, when we see people coming at. Uh, Ravi Zacharias mm. and saying that he's he's on the fringe, he's out here because he doesn't hold to this type of doctrine. And you got people saying that uh, William Lane Craig because he's a a Molinist that he that he's out here on the fringe and he's he's you know nuts. It's these kind of things are what really are destroying our our witness, our ability Amen. to to get in and actually have conversations with people because. We might use words that are similar to what Ravi would say, but yet using it as William Lane Craig would, or or in the same 
uh, in the same level at that, you know, with Molinism and try to explain that to people. It, people come with questions for a reason. And if we sit and are fighting each other internally, we'll never see those questions. We'll never be able to give that person an honest, honest answer. Absolutely. Well put. Very well put. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, what do you see as the solution to this problem? Well, let me just say one more thing. I think politics is another area, and and I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm I'm a very conservative person, but one one of the things I think we have to be careful with is is to make sure that that our main focus is on the kingdom of God rather than a kingdom of the world. Yeah, we need to be involved. We need to we need to um, you know stand our ground. I, I believe all of that, but we just got to be very careful in this and not become too. Um, and tied down politically that we we lose the soul of what we're trying to do spiritually so, mm-hmm. so the solution i think is found in three ways one i think major on the majors major on the essential things and i think uh right. you know they said socrates uh had um th- three i think he called it sieves i always mispronounce it uh the three sieves of truth. Someone came up to at to Socrates and asked him. He said, "I said I know something really bad about your friend," and he says, "Well, wait a minute." He said, uh, d- "Did you go through the three sieves of truth?" And they said, "Well, what is that?" He says, "Well, let me ask you the first. Is the first if is what you're going to tell me good?" He says, "Well, no, it's not good." He said, "Well, is it true?" He says, "Well, I don't know if it's true." He says, well, the third sieve is, is it, is it beneficial? Do I absolutely need to hear this? And he says, well, no, not really. He says, so, well, if it's if it's not good and it's not true and it's not beneficial, then why do you want to tell me? <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's true as well in apologetics or, or in, in anything in life. Major on okay. the majors and ask ourselves at the end of the day, yeah, I, I think we need to have the freedom to debate. We need to have the, the ability to disagree on the non-essentials. But at the end of the day, ask ourselves, is this a hill on which I'm willing to die? And I think yeah. we can solve a lot just by doing that first step. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I guess some of this kind of might be um, stirred up um, with, uh, you know, some of the discernment ministries that you see out there. And some of them, some of them are um, ultra critical of every single person out there. Um, you range from people saying that, all you need is is the the word the bible and you just and you just say scripture to people and and that's what's going to that's what's going to work with them and convert them and then you have on the other end that say no you know you, you got to use um, thought and reason and those kind of things and and you see these people fighting and bickering at each other but yet uh, you look at people like Jay Warner Wallace he came to faith through reasonable <laughs> dissection of, of what actually the, the scriptures were, of what of what the gospel said, and, and found out through evidence that that the Bible is true. Amen. Absolutely. So I think yeah. it's a combination of both. I th- but, but I think ultimately, you know, we, we need to use the Word of God, we need to use reason, but ultimately the most important is- aspect of all is that the Holy Spirit's in it because He's the one that's going to be guiding us to salvation, and so, right. so I think there's I think there's room for the Holy Spirit to use several different means to bring a person to salvation. So, I think sometimes we try to put a box around God and say God can only work this way. I remember being at a uh, conference one time with uh, Barry Leventhal, and um, 
He told the story of a person saved in a concentration camp by seeing a vision of Jesus. And the same thing's happening in the Middle East now. People having visions mm-hmm. of Jesus and coming to faith. So right. there's no limit to what God can do and, and how God can communicate and bring people to himself. Right. right. Yeah, and you know, it's to me, it's, I do believe it is a combination. I believe also it uh, involves prayer. You know, it Absolutely. involves those moments in time when uh, you may be shaking somebody's hand, you need to be uh, praying right there, you know, and and just while you're talking, be talking to God at that same time. Amen. Give the right words. Give me the right thoughts. Give me the right actions to be able to to show you in in me, show you in our conversation. So. Absolutely, and, and, and I think that brings us to another point uh, to, to remember, too, is that we need to remember our central command, which is to love God and love one another. And if we lose that, we've lost everything. Uh, There's a reason why Jesus said these were the two most important commandments of all. One coming from Deuteronomy 6, the other one coming from, I think, Leviticus 14. Uh, But there's a reason for this, and, and that's because love is the center of it all. And so we need to remember that despite what we're talking about or or to whom we're speaking, Love must be found there. We need to stand for the truth, but we also need to make sure we love the person with whom we're speaking. And that's why Jesus calls us to be salt and light, to be both. And so um, I think that's very important. And then lastly, to focus on the mission. And so I think the mission of apologetics is, quite frankly, evangelism. And I even say in the layman's manual on Christian apologetics that, that the apologist's main goal is to give a defense for Christ and not for oneself. It's, right. it's not to show off how our intellectual prowess or how smart yeah. we are. But it's right. to, point to, to point a person to Jesus, and that's what it's about, and that's what we should be about, pointing right. people to Christ. Yeah, yeah, and it's, the, the book um, has has really, it, it's it's an amazing book. I, I enjoy oh, thank reading you. it. Um, it's, there are a lot of things now, I'm going back through it again, and, and I'm just highlighting some stuff and writing back, writing down some things in there that, that really are, um, and I know that you know, later on in some of these podcasts, we'll we'll start covering some of these uh, uh, theories in the, in the book and, oh, and all that. But but uh, I I agree. I think that we need to stay stick with the basics. Stick with the basics. Oh, speaking of the book, before I forget, I talked with spoke with the publishers. They are working on a Kindle edition. Uh, they do have now a hardcover edition out. It's a little more expensive than the soft cover, and they also have. A thing through Barnes and Noble. It's on the Nook. I'm not very familiar with that, but uh, it is, is now a rent. Is that a rental one? You know, I'm really not sure. I, th- I think it's kind of <laughs> like a Kindle, but maybe. Uh, <laughs> okay. I really have no clue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But it's there if you have a Nook. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, you know, it kind of amazed me. We got another article that uh, came up, and like to cover some questions on it, but. Um, N.T. Wright wrote in uh, Time, uh, time time.com, the New Testament doesn't say what most people think it does about heaven. Uh, It's kind of an interesting article, um, and I actually, I enjoyed reading it. Um, It was good, Um, and I have a question for it. uh, Is N.T. Wright correct in that our understanding of heaven comes more from middle Platonism than the New Testament. 
Or Platonism, that's what it is. Well, yeah, and, and so Platonism is a is a Greek philosophy uh, that he's that he's referencing, and mm-hmm. um, I, I really appreciate N.T. Wright and I enjoy N.T. Wright's uh, writings. I, I I think he has some truth in this article, but I think he also I think maybe in my opinion, and and I don't and I say I don't say this lightly because N.T. Wright is a is a is a massive heavyweight in New Testament studies, but I kind of have to philosophically wonder and even biblically wonder whether all of what he's saying here is is, is necessarily true. I I think the main gist of what he's talking about is true, but I don't think that. I don't get where he's saying that uh, that the Middle Platonism began to take over the Christians' interpretation in what was it the third century I think he said or something like that. Yeah, well, it says um, to understand what the first followers of Jesus believed about what happened after death, we need to read the New Testament in its own word world, the world of Jewish hope and and of Roman imperialism and of Greek thought. Um, so it would have been right at. Uh, right after, probably the first century, right after Christ died. Yeah, and and so, so I think he's making the argument that late, you know, in later generations, that that Christians began to look more towards. I, I think what he's doing is is dissecting this intermediate state and saying that that Christians push this too far to saying that yeah. the ultimate hope is found in this spiritual heaven. I don't think he's necessarily correct in that, uh, I, 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 but I see what he's doing, and I, and I think the the general gist of what he's saying is correct. But I just have, I, I have, I think we have to take great care, and the reason is that I think that there are a lot of scholars who today are saying that the biblical worldview does not take does not include a spiritual heaven, which we call the intermediate state. Um, Theologically speaking, the intermediate state is that period of time between when we die and the final resurrection of Jesus. You know, what, what, where do we go? What happens to us after we die until the time of Christ, Christ's resurrection? But now he is right. He is right in that the ultimate hope is coming from the resurrection that's to ultimately come when Christ returns. He's absolutely right. Because we'll, we'll receive our resurrected bodies at that time, and but there's a little nuance where I'd also disagree with him as well. And again, this isn't this isn't a hill worth dying on. But the question is: Is this earth going to be the new heaven and the new earth, or is there going to be a new creation? And the way I understand Scripture in the Book of Revelation. It seems to suggest that uh, th- that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. I think that's in Revelation twenty-one, right. if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And and yep. and he also talks about in uh, Peter says in Second Peter that when God the Father steps on the scene, that the elements will melt away. So what I think you find in in theologically speaking in Scripture is I think that you're finding that in the end, God is going to re- essentially resurrect creation to to a brand new form. So the old heavens and the old earth will pass away. The old universe will pass away. And there's going to be a grand new development of a, of a new heaven and new earth. Now, could he resurrect this earth into a new earth? I know it's possible. It's very possible that he could. Um so I think that I think the general gist of what N.T. Wright's saying is true, 
but I think there are some nuances that we have to to uh, work through. Uh, some areas that I think that if we're not careful, we could take it into an area uh, that um, may be you know a little unbiblical. Because because Curtis, I have to say, I strongly believe in an intermediate state in a spiritual heaven, if you want to call it paradise or whatever the case may be. Because if if you go back and remember when the thief was on the cross. And he asked Christ for forgiveness. Do you remember what he said to the thief? Yeah, he yeah, said, said, "Today, today, you will be with me in paradise." Not, not, not. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. this very moment, you're going to be yeah. with me in paradise. So if right. if we reject a spiritual heaven, we've essentially made Jesus into a liar. You know, on the cross. So I think I think that's the only that's the only. You know, a little nuance I think we have to work through. I think he goes on to agree that there is a spiritual heaven, uh, but that the ultimate the ultimate um, hope is for the final resurrection. And on that, I, did, I wholeheartedly agree with him. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think we do have to take care in some of the nuances that we don't lose that aspect of, of that intermediate state. Right. Yeah, it does say here, it says... Uh, um, and the point was not for us to go to heaven, but for life of heaven to arrive on earth. Jesus taught his followers to pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. From as early as the third century, some Christians, uh, teachers tried to blend this type, this with types of platonic belief, generating the idea of leaving earth and going to heaven, which became mainstream by the Middle Ages. And then it drops down the next paragraph. It says, Israel's scriptures had long promised that God would come back in person to dwell with his people forever. Uh, tabernacle with them. That's what that's what he's getting at. Um, dwelt, among, dwelt in our midst. And for the word dwelt means literally tabernacle, pitched his tent. Yes, um, the way I understand that is he did do that. Um, the day he was born, the day he came. That's, exactly. Uh, and that's how I understand that, is he was here tabernacling, tabernacle with us, and and here with us on earth. You're absolutely right. But but now the Platonism, the Platonism he's talking about is making a distinction between the material world and the spiritual world, saying that the spiritual world is good, the material world is bad. And so... I think the caution, and yes, I think he's right that that the ultimate goal is a blend of the physical and spiritual into this new spiritual body that will possess ultimately at the resurrection. But I, but I think you have to be very careful here because I think Stanley Grins is is a theologian who does this. There's some others who even go to the point of saying that when we die, that's it. You know that, that we we are non-existent until existent until the time of the resurrection. Well, I don't think that's a bit biblical because there again you made Jesus a liar when he's talking to the thief on the cross, and Jesus basically says in John eleven that uh, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will never never die. Uh, that essentially they'll continue to live on forever, and so for that to be true, he he. he if Stanley Grins is right in what he seems to be suggesting, and if and if you take it too far to say that uh, there's not a spiritual existence, 
then you basically say that Jesus would say, you know, if you believe in me, you're going to die, but then you're going to live. But that's not what he says. He, he, there's a continuance of life, mm-hmm. you know, even into eternity. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that was just a little red flag I had in the article. I mean, otherwise, I think the article's really good, and I would suggest people read it. But I think there's some little nuances there that I would I would caution people with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know we kind of covered a little bit of it, but part of the part of the next question is what does the Bible say concerning the intermediate state in the period between a person's death and resurrection? And I normally go well as as we mentioned before. You know Jesus's word word to the uh, thief on the cross. I think is very important here to say that uh, today you will be with me in paradise. The the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, Curtis. Right. There's some people who don't even believe that's a parable. Uh, some right. people believe yeah. that it may have been a true story that Jesus was telling. Uh, right. That happened in eternity. So yeah, and it came across as a parable. Yeah, yeah and I and and I've and I guess there are there are a lot of um, uh, scriptures that actually point towards exactly what you're talking about. Um, you know, um, and so I had a problem with the with the article just in the fact that um, you know he's he's kind of stretching. Some of the yeah. meaning of tabernacled, and yet, um, and, and kind of shrinking what heaven is. And I agree. And, and I think that when you even look at Revelation, I, not long ago I finished a study on the book of Revelation, and one thing you see through that is this spiritual state of existence that that you even have the martyrs in heaven around the throne of God asking God, when will our uh, deaths be avenged. When will when will we see you know uh, when will we see a, a, uh, something happen to those who 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 persecuted us? When, when are we going to see? So there's a communication even between individuals in heaven and God, you know, going on through the Book of Revelation. Now, some people will say, "Well, that's just symbolic." Well, I don't think that all of it is symbolic. I think that you see this uh, spiritual existence. I mean, you have angels who are spiritual beings. You have the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus says God is spirit, and those who worship him should worship him in spirit and in truth. So, In truth, yeah. So you have a lot of aspect of a spiritual being, an entity of existence. Paul even talks about uh, a third heaven in Second Corinthians. Yeah. yeah, and he says he didn't know whether he... whether. Whether he was in the third heaven or not, uh, you know, it, it, he was hinting at or, or talking yeah. in third person. Uh, but, um, you know, he was hinting at that this does exist and this is, this is there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you're right. I, th- I think there's pl- a plethora of scriptures out there that indicate that, uh, and this is first century, this isn't third century, but first century information saying, hey, there is a spiritual state, but hey, it's not the end. The end right. state is going to be this marvelous blend of spirit and body and physical together in this new grand creation. And man, I'm telling you what, I think heaven's going to be far greater and grander <laughs> than we can even imagine. Yeah, amen. So, uh, is uh, is right? Is N.T. Wright uh, correct in assuming that the New Jerusalem will come down to this earth? Well. <sighs> 
it, it depends on how you read. It, it, it depends on several things. It depends on how you view the new creation, uh, and it depends on really and somewhat how you view um, revelation, how you view eschatology, end time things. Um, if this world is going to be the new creation, then the new Jerusalem would come down to this earth. But if there's going to be a new creation, I mean, again, it's possible that this world could be recreated and that it would come down to this earth. It's possible. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's completely aired. But as I read Revelation, and especially Revelation 21, where it talks about a new heaven and a new earth, and the old heaven and the old earth are destroyed, it just... If, if you take it at face value, it seems to be that there is this new structure that's built. And it, if that's the case, then whatever earth will the new heaven will be on, or the new earth will be, then you see this new Jerusalem coming down to, to it. Uh, will that be this earth, or will it be another world God creates? It, it really depends on what you do. It's catalogically with your theology, how you read Revelation, and, and how you uh, view a lot of things concerning the end times. Uh, personally, the way I understand Scripture, I think there's going to be a new creation. So, yes, I think the new Jerusalem is going to come down to whatever earth is created for us uh, at that time, whether it's this one recreated or if it's another one. Uh, but I think that's what John's seeing. and. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing is that the, that the gates are not going to be locked on it e- either. Right. So I mean, people have right. open access to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and that's a well, and and that's that falls into um, a, a image of uh, Jewish understanding of of certain holiday that that just went past, um, and it's it's really intense when you start understanding the the calendar um what is called uh, god's moeds you know his appointed times when he's going to come and meet with us and and these things are marked on a calendar if you look at the biblical calendar how things have come down these things uh, do play a factor and i think that's part of what i'm seeing in this is is some of it he took and and had some of that uh, calendar, and then some of it he twisted and turned. I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and the interesting thing is, all throughout the scripture in the Old Testament and the New, I, I think the temples are are representative of what uh, this new ultimate new heaven is going to be. Some people believe that uh, the the temple was a physical representation of the heavenly temple in in heaven, uh, and uh, and so. As you go along throughout the building of these temples, they're they're just pointing to what this ultimate tabernacle will be in the end times. And and the most important thing, no matter whether it's this earth or another earth or whatever the case may be, the beautiful thing we see in Revelation twenty one twenty two is that God is forever going to tabernacle, make His home with, with us. His creation, with us, His right. people, and we will be His God. We, he, he will be our God, and we will be His people for all eternity. And so He's right. going to make that ultimate tabernacle with us. And uh, boy, what an amazing thing to consider here at oh, Christmas! Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, and you know the the scriptures come alive when you start realizing that and one thing that caught me um i know it doesn't quite pertain to this but reading through luke 2 
just uh, on a rhythm uh, before Christmas, uh, you read in there where uh, the angel comes and tells, you know, the shepherds that they'll be able to find him in a manger. And they say, and as soon as he says in a manger, it says right, the script, the next scripture, it says, then a, a appeared the heavenly host. Oh, yeah. And so it was absolutely instant. The very first time angels would be able to lay eyes on God. Wow. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So we got only a few more minutes left here. So I'll ask one more question. Uh, so what is the bi biblical picture pertaining to the current heaven and the new creation? So I think the biblical picture is this. If, if we're going to lay it out, uh, I, th I think what we see is, is, as Paul says, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So if we were to lay out kind of a timeline, a way we have it, uh, right now when we die, we spiritually, we, do, we don't cease to exist. We, we continue to survive. Our souls go to be with the Lord. Our bodies return to dust. That's what Solomon even says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Right. That uh, yeah. the spirit goes back to God who gave it and the body goes to dust. So we enter into, if you want to call it paradise or if you want to call it the spiritual heaven, whatever the case you want to be, we go into the, the very presence of God upon death. Um we don't cease to exist. We we continue to live on in the presence of God. I don't think this is Platonism. Uh, I I think this is I think this is the New Testament picture that is presented before us. Uh, you see it in Luke. You see it in Second First Second Corinthians. You see it in Revelation. You see it really all throughout Scripture. Even in the Book of Ecclesiastes, you see it. So mm -hmm. there is this idea that when we die. Oh, by the way, you even see it in the Old Testament where it talks about people, uh, the the uh, patri the uh, patriarchs. They 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 go and live with their people. That was the understanding that they went to this spiritual place with God. Mm -hmm. So even in Genesis, you even see this, so right. to speak. So there is this spiritual existence where we abide as believers. Now there's also this spiritual holding place. Uh, that this that, you know, and there are different opinions on that, but. But the spiritual heaven is in the presence of God. The spiritual spiritual holding place, which we would call hell now, would be out of the presence of God, so to speak, wherever right. that is. Um, and so ultimately what we find, Christ is going to return. And our, we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ will, will rise first. That means our souls will come back to meet our bodies, even if we're only a speck of dust. We'll be resurrected, transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And those who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's where we get the word rapture uh, from the word parousia, the Latin word raptus, uh, to uh, be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And, you know, Curtis, even the, those without Christ are going to be resurrected as well. Right. Many people miss right. this point. They're right. going to receive a resurrected body as well. We as believers, we go into the presence of Christ, rule right. and reign for all of eternity. Those without Christ are resurrected. Now, here's, here's what happens. That spiritual heaven becomes the new heaven and the new earth where we forever abide with, right. with God. The... Um, Oh, excuse me, I knocked over my coffee, getting too excited. <laughs> the, the spiritual hell will be dumped out into what the Bible calls the lake of fire, and that will be the, uh, the end result of those without Christ. So that's kind of the, the layout you see in Scripture. So 
I don't. I, I think even even uh, in some Jewish writings, you see this understanding of uh, of uh, of a spiritual heaven, a spiritual hell. Some aspects of Judaism didn't hold that, such as the Sadducees and the Samaritans. But the uh, Pharisees clearly believed in a spiritual heaven, and the Essenes did as well. So to say that this idea of a spiritual form of existence is Platonist and not uh, of the Jewish mindset is is um, I don't think that's what N.T. Wright is saying, but I th- I know others who have made that that claim. In fact, N.T. Yeah, Wright in his book Resurrection of the Son of God makes the makes the argument that even in the Old Testament you have this understanding of this compartmentalization of Sheol where a part of it was a paradise and a part of it was a spiritual hell. So I don't think N.T. Wright believes that it's completely non-biblical. I think he's... Uh, but I think it can be confusing to people if they don't dissect through what he's saying all the, all the way through. Right. Right. Yep. Well, this has been great, Brian. Uh, good discussion. Um, been enjoying every minute of it. I, I sure hope that this blesses uh, listeners and uh, and those that are around. Um, so, uh, as for now, we're going to cut out and uh, we will uh, we will be uh, talking with you guys later. Listening later. Our prayer here is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is reliable information as a source. Join us next time on Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, soldier on, friends. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristie.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.